So, you've got an idea for a business. The store of your dreams. There's just one thing to figure out. Everything. That's why Shopify's all-in-one commerce platform makes it easy to sell online, in person, and everywhere else. Sell on social media. Source products with an app to get that first sale feeling. It's the only solution that gives you everything you need to sell everywhere you want. So when you're ready to bring your idea to life, power it up with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash listen. And now, Hangar 56 Media presents Spike's Car Radio, a downloadable cars and coffee, hosted by writer, comedian, and automotive enthusiast, Spike Ferriston. Now, here's Spike. Anyway, welcome to Spike's Car Radio. Hi, everybody. Happy Wednesday. I'm glad to be with you. I hope you're enjoying your drive. I hope you're enjoying your workshop. You know, I see... Now, you listeners listening in the car on your phones at home, I've seen myself on the Apple TV, the Spikes Car Radio. We're happy to be with you today. We've got a great show for you. Um, Judd Apatow, uh, a few days ago I sat down with him. I'm a, I'm a huge fan of his films, a huge fan of his writing. Um, we chatted over Zoom. We're going to play that in a little bit. Um, Zuckerman's here. We're going to discuss uh, the new 992 Turbo S in a moment. Um, but first, this watch, Zuckerman. Gorgeous. This crown and caliber watch, okay? This is the new Sky Dweller. And by new, I think it's a 2012 model. It's the first time I've gotten to wear one. It's the stainless steel with a blue dial. Um, and I put it on not really knowing anything about the watch. And the more I've discovered about this watch, the more I like it. The, the instant feedback, Zuckerman, from this was uh, too country club, right? It looks too country club, it's too shiny, okay? Before I came here today, I did my dive. I learned so much about this watch, and now I'm in love with it. Now, forget about that you can find these on Crown & Caliber, and this isn't a branded segment. This is this part of the, the loaner program. Let me tell you a few things about this watch. The Sky Dweller Rolosaur. Do you know what Rolosaur means, Zuckerman? Is it related to a dinosaur? <laughs> it sounds it <laughs> sounds prehistoric, doesn't yes. it? Okay. Rolex, and maybe you understand branding better than me. We have these like two different metals in watches, right? The two-tone watches, whatever they call them. Rolex decides to give theirs a name. And they come up with a name and they trademark it called the Rolosaur. Okay. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> okay, now when you see a Rolosaur Rolex, it generally means it's like stainless steel with yellow gold, right? When th- that two-tone. That's what we call two-tone, us idiots. Because we're not watch- we don't know how to review watches. We- we're just enthusiasts of all of this stuff. We're not car reviewers either. We're enthusiasts like you. We just like this stuff. It's and- made of metal. And we're trying to learn. <laughs> exactly. Some kind of metal. Okay. You look at this one, though. Yes, I see. And it's the all, different reflections. But it all looks the same, right? It all looks stainless steel. However, no. No, I can tell around the bezel. The bezel is white gold, oh, making oh, it a oh, Rolosaur. Oh. Now, the bezel... Is it S-A- is S-A-U-R, like dinosaur, or S-O-R-E, like no. my back hurts? That would be really weird. It's like Rolex, R-O-L-E, and S-O-R, Rolosaur. But no S-O-R-E, what like a metal, Rolosaur. What kind like of metal is S-O-R? It, this is a made-up word. It's very close to Rolex, Rolosaur. I, I don't know. I'm sure someone will post it when we post the, uh, the show on Instagram. They'll say, here's what it is. You dope. Watch nerds. <laughs> you can tell us. We want to know. 
Um, the first thing you get when you're dealing with this watch, Zuckerman, the first thing you deal with is how the hell do I set it? It doesn't set like any other watch because it's got this 9001 uh, movement, mechanical movement, a complication, I guess. It's really tricky, but it's one video, one minute of watching, and you can set this watch. Here, It's very satisfying. You set it by turning the bezel. Look at the – there's – Oh, no kidding. One position, two position, three positions to the right on the bezel, and each one has a different function, and that's how it sets. It doesn't Clever. have a. Clever. Isn't that cool? Clever. So here's what it reve- reveals to me it's 42 millimeters, 14 millimeters high, which isn't so bad compared to like a Tag Heuer, Octavia, any of that new stuff. 50 millimeters lug to lug, so it looks a little long on my spindly right. girl wrists, right? But I'm a damn good guitar player because of those wrists. White gold bezel. Also, Zuckerman, white gold indices. These hash yeah, marks. I know what an indice okay. is. And this watch, when it first came out, only had Arabic or Roman numerals. Now it's got these neat little rectangular indices, right? Yeah, Exclamation indice. points. You, <laughs> look, look, you morons. Your look, your indices. <laughs> you imbecile. Uh, You're a bunch what, of indices. Here's what I'm going to tell you when I look at that. I would say this would be a great watch if you're 30 to say 50-ish, if you are a sportsman, if you are the kind of guy that likes golfing, yachting, or that kind of lifestyle, this watch will look great on you with that blue. Okay. That's my opinion. Okay. Well, I'm not done describing it, though. 24-hour secondary time zone display because there's oh. an important – see, right in the middle Sorry there. for interrupting. Well, that's – no. I just mean I, I hear what you say, and I kind of agree with that. I have a different usage for this one. Month display. Can you t- look at the dial of this? Where's the month display? Can you find it, Zuckerman? I'm too blind. Bring it close. Don't touch I me. Your COVID hands. <laughs> my herpes. I got the herpes. <laughs> I think I see it in this, that ring in the center. It's right there oh. under the indices. There are 12 little apertures. I see. And the month will register as red. The rest is can white. I, can I get a matching monocle so I can <laughs> read that? <laughs> it has a 72-hour power reserve. I haven't had to wind it. It winds itself when it's on your wrist. And then I wore, wore a bunch of other stuff. Want to buy a watch. Just uh, redid my Viceroy. And, and that thing is working like crazy. I came back to this watch five days later. Still just working perfectly. GMT annual calendar. Here's the deal. Is this the most complicated I can't answer that. I don't know. This is a it's, Ben Clymer question, not, I not for me. Yeah, because this but is the kind the of Rolex. I've never seen all this stuff. This is a watch I would say you would get this to go to Sardinia on your vacation yes. if there were such a thing as vacations. Because you can take it into the water, and it's a traveler's watch. Yes. It's a real traveler's watch. And uh, you know how crazy I am about silver-blue things. I get I lose my mind. And this style is the right blue. I think it's a really cool watch. They're in the low 20s right now. <laughs> Pocket change. Pocket oh, change. Oh, oh. Peabody. Peabody and Swiggins. <laughs> oh, why? <laughs> well, Peabody, yeah. let's get six then. <laughs> yes. Just a mere, mere <laughs> rounding error in my life. Tell you what, Swiggins, let's take some of that government money we just got <laughs> and spend it all yes. on watches. Peabody. <laughs> Clever. <laughs> Clever Peabody. So am I Peabody? Is that how it I works? I don't know. It doesn't but matter. I just think Peabody's terrific. <laughs> Anyways, I dig this watch. Thank you, Crown and Caliber. And, I, and, you know, it was fun. It's been a fun experience learning about a new kind of watch. 
And and I'll be honest with you, I didn't really like it in the beginning. I didn't I didn't care for it. And then when I took a moment to kind of study it and wear it and learn it, now I have a, a true appreciation for it, and that's coming from my enjoyment of it. And who cares what everybody else thinks? But yeah, it's very country club. It's very expensive. But isn't that's the fun of wearing these loners, right? I like it. It's cool. I All like right. it now. I like it better. We got something better. We what got we something got? better for you. Um, what do you got? Porsche sent me the nine nine. Two Turbo S. Um, Zuckerman took it out for a spin the other day. We're going to discuss it. You know, uh, when you get one of these press cars, not every manufacturer hands you documentation or history or anything else, but Porsche does. They sent me look at look look what they sent. The history of the 911 Turbo Zuckerman. Really. Which was fun just to read through. All right. Did they email it to you? Would you please forward that to me? Yeah, I can send it to you. But but I thought I'd go through some of it right now, just yes. to re- as we approach this car and about as we're about to discuss it, to kind of have some context in the history. So the 911 Turbo was debuted at the Paris Motor Show in 1974, Zuckerman. Yes, sir. Where they presented a high-performance sports car that set new benchmarks in terms of power and luxury, the 911 Turbo 3.0. Horsepower, Zuck? What would you say? 280-ish or so. 234. Oh, that's it. Oh, wait. Hold on. Yeah, 234. Top speed, 155. Now, 77. The Porsche 911 Turbo gets a bigger engine, making up to 300. In the spring of 1975, Porsche starts production of the 911 Turbo, followed by the 911 Turbo 3.3 in 77, which managed to reach the magic threshold of... 221 KW, 300 PS. Wow. Right? And 261 horsepower. Here in the United States. Okay. Moving on. 2000. Boy, that's a pretty big skip for them. Yeah, they, they left out the leaving the U.S. market from, what, 79 to 86 with the turbo. Right. And then they... But there's the, what about the 98 turbos? Right, and then they left out uh, the 964, which was only supposed to get a 3.3, and then in the last year got a 3.6 unexpectedly, and then the last of the air cooled. Oh, wait, they put some of that right here. You're right. The Type 964 911 revamped 93... As the 911 Turbo 3.6 delivering 355 and 95, the next 911 Turbo set new benchmarks in sports car construction. The engine of the 993 generation Turbo delivered 400 horsepower from 3.6 liters, now using two turbo chargers for the very first time. So there's your double twin turbos for the first time. It could accelerate from zero to 100 kilometers in 4.5 seconds on its way up to a track speed of 180. Still fast. And was the uh, first turbo model fitted with a six-speed manual transmission, God bless them, as well as the groundbreaking all-wheel drive system adopted on the 911 Carrera 4. Okay. And in the Turbo S, guys, was the first car where they used carbon fiber as a design feature. Boy, we used to hate turbos back then. We didn't even look at them. We're just like, oh, turbos. Not a purist car. Huh? Not a purist car. No, but I've totally flipped on them. Okay. 2000. The first generation of the 911 Turbo after the turn of the century was presented in February 2000 and was heralded as the world's cleanest cleanest car. Is that heralding? Here's the cleanest car, we say. (laughs) (laughs) This was achieved by a four-valve technology, water cooling, and the first ever use of Vario Cam plus helping it achieve 
415 horsepower, 0 to zero to 100 kilometers, 4.2 seconds at top track speed of creeping up, 189. For the first time, an automatic transmission, Tiptronic, of course, PCCB brakes, Porsche ceramic composite brakes were available as options. And now, the sixth generation of the 911 Turbo, February 2006, 997, output 480 horsepower, Automatic Tiptronic transmission was faster from 0 to 60, 3.4 seconds, than the six-speed manual of 3.7. Again, human beings now starting to slow the cars down. Top speed creeping up again, 193. Big. Big speed. 2010, a completely new twin-turbo engine, 500 horsepower. Holy moly. They didn't bother to drop the top speed in this one. I'm reading through it. 2013, the first 911 Turbo with rear axle steering, active uh, aerodynamics, an amazing car on the 50th anniversary. They revealed it. Turbo, Turbo S. Uh, now they're talking about uh, Nürburgring. Track times under 7.3 minutes on road tires. <laughs> Unbelievable. Huh? It's unreal. Um, Meanwhile, engine developments were paired with a new PTM all-wheel drive system, turbocharged 3.8 liter 6, 560 horsepower on the S, 520 on the 911 Turbo. Turbo model reached 60 miles uh, per hour in under three seconds. So there's our first. It really, talk about the speed with which they developed this technology, how quickly it advances to the current state of the art. Yes, and by the way, it just illustrates why we love this company. They're, they're taking this thing and refining it and making it better and making it faster, right? They never sleep on their laurels. Okay, let's flash forward today, ladies and gentlemen, my friends. We have just been driving the 2021 911 Turbo S Coupe. They're also putting out a 911 Turbo S Cab, but this Guards Red, Zuckerman's favorite color, Boys in their 20s, favorite color, has been in our hands, this 992, and we have been driving it. First, some stats, Zuckerman. The 911 flagship has 60 more horsepower than the previous turbo. Two VTG VTG turbochargers help the 3.8-liter boxer deliver 640 horsepower. Vitage, Vitage, turbocharge has increased by 37 pound foot so more torque more horse improved acceleration the sprint to zero to 60 2.6 seconds top track speed up again 205 and accelerates from zero to 124 in just 8.9 seconds taking a full second off its predecessor's time so it's faster (laughs) <laughs> it's a little wider. It's got different tires. It's got enhanced Porsche ceramic composite brakes that have grown. It's sportier in character. I would agree with that. It looks beautiful. Active aerodynamics that are fun to watch go up and down and in and out. And uh, for the first time, Zuckerman, new lightweight and noise insulated glass. Really? How about that? How about that? What is noise insulated glass? God, well, you know, it's they're saying it's lighter glass and it keeps the sound out. I can tell you it works because I had the window down in that car and I had the window up 
and I did two drives, and I heard something spectacular. We'll talk about our driving experience, but whatever they have in there, when I started listening to this engine, I fell in love. Um, let me see if I left anything out. Eight-speed uh, transmission, eight. I haven't seen an eight on the dial. It'll probably be 12. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay. That's that's pretty much it. That's that's all you need to know. You guys can Google the rest. There's a lot of uh, a lot of marketing here that I don't want to go through. But let's talk about how the car drives. Okay, so Zuckerman, isn't that unbelievable picture I sent you? Yeah. Zuckerman, yesterday. Are there two moments in this car I remember? Okay, three. First of all, when we brought it out to Bills, um, how the under 30 crowd went bonkers for it bonkers in guards red how it was instantly surrounded i brought it out i brought it out the next day they came back they this is your audience for guards red these kids but they knew so much about this car and they were so excited i heard one kid from the porch at bills yell daddy daddy the new turbo's here <laughs> and I was like, boy, I can't believe... The level of excitement. The level of excitement over and this I don't, car. I don't think of the 9. And one, they had that level of excitement. This is this is new, right? This is new. I, I don't know. So that's one moment. I'm going to say there are four moments now that stand out. Then on the way out the other day, I gave you the keys, and I was driving in the 964 RS, which I will comment on later. And I got to look at the exterior styling of the car, and it is badass looking. I saw it in motion, and I saw it fr- off the front of my fender, from the passenger side fender, and it is—it's tough. It's mean looking, right? And I—you don't notice it when you're in it, but that is a cool looking exterior design. I think that they got that because some people—not me, but some people—have said that the, that the 992 has some design things that i won't call them flaws but some taste issues they don't like with the front or back end this the back car, end is something we've yeah, criticized yeah, but before. this car really does yeah it hits its mark in the looks right right i i don't know that guards red is my favorite as you know but still i could see the beauty of the exterior design now number three the boys and I took it up. They, you know, they're in love with this thing. So we took it up. Uh, after doing a drive, I came back and picked them up. We just drove up and down the 405, and we put those lightweight windows up. And I heard the engine for the first time. Really? Now, there is a unique engine sound. I'm going to admit right now I can't explain what it is. Can you make the sound, though? <laughs> no, but I can describe it as I am a wordsmith. Okay, so and, and <laughs> did you notice this? But when you have the sound up and you accelerate, and I think this has a motor sound package, which, by the way, I think this is the first time a turbo has a motor sound package um, offered. There is the sound of, like, two distinct sides of an engine at the same time that I told you sounded like the equivalent of a 12-string guitar, sounding like two guitars at once. And and they're both just one side is just slightly off pitch than the other, and it makes for the coolest new sound I've heard come out of a turbo. Would you play that twelve string guitar for me again? Definitely. Yeah. Yes, we'll play the, some zap. We'll I, I just saw your hand mo- mo- movement was was fantastic. Oh, we're, there's a guitar revival going on in my house. James, my ten year old, is playing, and now we're out. It's on, man. Every day we jam. It's fun. Okay, last, lastly, yesterday, after the boys were done with their school, we blasted out to Bill's for a quick lunch, 
and they asked for launch control, which, as you know, is difficult <laughs> within the city limits. However, uh, Temescal Canyon. My say is Temescal Canyon yeah, right there. Okay, right. Heading up to Sunset, we pulled over, and after a minute, it was completely empty. Both sides, no one there, no parked cars, no people. So we did a launch control that we will never forget. We only rode out. We I think we got up to the bottom of third gear. We did not break speed limits, but I'm not sure because my eyeballs were vibrating so much. Did you soil your panties? <laughs> Everything was blurry. Now, I've only had a launch control once before like this, and it was the Tesla Model S in ludicrous mode, where your, your eyes strobe so much you can't see. <laughs> you have a seizure. <laughs> you have a little bit of a seizure. It was awesome, Zuckerman. <clears throat> I can only imagine... That this 2.6 they're talking about is a little high. I can't back that up, but I'm sure my friends at Car and Driver or Motor Trend are going to be doing some real testing. My guess is 2.4. 2.4. Didn't I hear somebody say it was under 2? Did we hear a quote from a car no, guy that, that was under 2? that is not two? possible. I didn't think it was possible either, but we heard <clears> that from somebody. It's blindingly fast it reminds me of the Taycan takeoff the Taycan Turbo S takeoff it's it, it's really great because you have those four tires grabbing the road and now the kids want to aim a GoPro at their mom and uh, put her in the passenger seat and surprise <laughs> her which I think is a funny idea but she'll kill me if I do that it's spectacular Zuckerman I was excited by it it was really it was it was really interesting to come out of the 964 which is such a visceral small driving car and then to get in this car the dna is really obvious it's really apparent uh, obviously it's a bigger car it's a, it's a much more powerful car it's a, it, but it is a smooth package um i liked it better on the pch than on sunset it really it really was hitting it for me on the pch and i was i was it's instantaneous, the speed in that car, the ability to Seriously. just slice through traffic. Yeah. Hot knife through butter. No tickets for either of us either. Uh, Matt Farah, instant ticket. Johnny Lieberman, instant ticket. Thus far, I've been safe. I know you didn't get pulled over. You said it right, though. It's the smoothness of this car. This is one of those. Now, now everybody, there are folks listening who go, but you guys don't buy those. Not necessarily. Jerry has a couple. Um, and we are GT guys, and we're looking forward to it. But we're talking about this car because it, because it's so usable. The usability of this car, and I feel like it has a bit of a track component now added to it. Just it's just a huge win with the adjustable suspension for sure. I, if I was unavailable torque now everywhere. Right. The if, if I was a, if I was the kind of guy that was constantly in traffic, constantly commuting, yeah. I would take this over a GT car for that Absolutely. that use. Yeah, and the only thing I can't, the only test I can't really do lifestyle wise is is running around to meetings because there are no meetings anymore. I'm, you know, I'm just really just driving to bills and driving to the supermarket because we're still shut down here. So, you know, that's where I think it's really going to be a champ that you take this car out to work all week and you're comfortable and it's quiet and then you can destroy anything on the road anywhere or probably on the track as well. I would definitely go for the Cabriolet version of this. I yeah. would take it to that extreme. You definitely could go to the track with the Turbo S. Uh, I wouldn't do that necessarily in a Cabriolet. But if, if for lifestyle, uh, the Cabriolet in this package has to be incredible. Yeah. No, I agree. 
That's that's a great uh, Ellen DeGeneres choice, I would say. <laughs> Can't you just see her? It <clears throat> seems like like that's like the ultimate kind of. Uh, what are you saying, Ferrison? I don't know. It's like there's if I would get, I would get a turbo cab if I were like this super famous media person. Aren't you? <laughs> no, not at all. Just, you know, because it's the perfect sports, everything sports car. Uh, and, and if you weren't really a car guy, you'd get the cab. Like, I remember Chris Rock was driving one of those, too. And I'm like, that's a really cool choice. It's like you may not be a Porsche guy, but you've got everything you need. That's you can right. put the top down. You can blow off everybody. You can go to your meetings in it, and it's fine. It's, Ab- a, it's such a win. It's expensive. Absolutely. 205 <laughs> is where they start. Big you know. bucks. Big I would, mega bucks. I have to going back to the kids. Yeah, their love for the red in this car really surprised me. And sure, yeah. they're young guys, <laughs> but there was a time ten years ago, younger guys would not have looked at a red car. Not even a few years ago. Right. This was something where it was fresh, where they're appreciating color as opposed to just purely wanting black, silver, or white. It is a vibrant car community here in Los Angeles. Anybody who tells you that the kids, uh, the, the cars are dying, the old men are dying, and nobody's, you're, you're full of shit. <laughs> the weirdest thing was the guy that came in the Chalk 991 that parked next to the Turbo S and then revved his engine I over think that and over. was the dad of the kid who said, Daddy, Daddy, the new Turbo S is here. I'm pretty sure that was his dad. Okay, why was he revving his engine? He, uh, I, well, you know. Why? <laughs> he was not behaving. <laughs> got but, ex- you're saying he got excited? No, and it brings up an interesting point because then they, they all wanted me to start it up. I said, I think you're going to be a little disappointed. It doesn't make a sound like a GT3 or 911R or, or even a, a low rumble of a GT2 RS. A turbo doesn't rev that way, right? And that would be, you know, they may have solved it with this motor sound package. And forgive me, I don't know that this has the motor sound package, but that's the only thing I'd want is the ability to make a little noise when I want it because I love that in the GT2 RS. You know what I mean? But boy, that launch control is worth the price of admission. How do you do it? Huh? How do you do the launch control? And it was effortless. It was so easy. Sport plus, brake, rev to six, let go of brake. Boom. Lightning. Lightning, Zuckerman. We'll have to do it before we give the car back. You'll enjoy it. It's, it's pretty great. And very controllable. You know, it just that car just handles so well. At no moment, except for the fact that everything was blurry, did I feel this thing was out of control. But I didn't ride it up past uh, third gear, so, you know, we are on city streets, and I want to at least try to obey Man. the rules. <laughs> street schmeats. In any case, okay. Now, the uh, <clears throat> other funny thing was Zuckerman brings his uh, Guards Red 964, and for, about, for pretty much most of the ride, I'm like, this is the best driving 964 I've ever driven. It's fast. It handles well. It turns great. I can't believe a stock 964 drives like this. And I pull up next to him and I go, is this a stock 964? Or is this, this feels like an RS. He goes, dummy. <laughs> yeah. You're driving. You moron. You moron. You're driving a 964 RS. That car's outstanding. Absolutely. That's a 92, right? It's a 92 and it's the touring version of the 964 RS mm-hmm. of which... There were very few. So in the garage here, what you were confused about is I have a 93 Guards Red C2 that I've had forever. And uh-huh. it's a much softer uh, kind of a car. Still pretty good. But the 964 RS really dials it up. And 
it's not it doesn't go all the way because the the vast majority of 964 RSs are called the basic. Some people call them lightweights, but they're they're really called the basic. They don't have air conditioning, radio, uh, door handles. Uh, they have the carbon fiber buckets. The Touring has power windows, radio, AC, and it has those sports seats that are upholstered like 959 seats with a multicolored panel. So it's a really comfortable version of a 964RS. It really should have been called maybe the 964S. I don't know. That that really is the best handling 964 I've ever driven. It wasn't too extreme. It wasn't too entry level. Do you know what I mean? It was it was just felt it just felt balanced and fun and fast. Well, well a lot of people don't understand ex- what it I is. But I got to experience it without knowing what it was and uh. I noticed. Do you see I noticed the things I didn't I didn't project the things knowing that I was driving an RS model. I was feeling it in the car. Yeah. But what a winner that car is. Well, thank you. Except for the red. <laughs> the red is fantastic. <laughs> no, I like it. It's fine. It's like sitting in a cow's vagina. Oh, Ferriston. No. I thought you said a bucket of blood. A bucket of blood? Suck them in blood. Suck them no, blood. No, you know, when I, when I see that there's an audience for the car, these young men that like this car, I, 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 I'm cool with it. My kids like it, too. They, they think it's all right. But the they're just the, No, the red. The red. No, the driving is outstanding. Like, how do you not get one of these? Can these be brought in now without any sort of problem? Yes, yes but you, you won't find... There were only 76 Tourings made. They were not... Uh, it was not a popular option. Wow. Everybody wanted the more hardcore car. And the hardcore car, it is an incredible driver, but it's not very useful because it is so such a hard, stiff suspension. It is not comfortable. You don't have AC. You don't have radio. The, the, the touring package is a much better way to go. Don't you have a black one, too? I'm looking at it right over there. So there are two right there. Yes. Uh, we'll have to do a drive, both yes. of those at the same time. That's interesting. Yeah. Yeah, those cars You'll are... You'll notice a difference. The, I will. Oh, you will. And the, 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 the 964 Basic is a much lighter car. You'll hear it. You'll feel it. Uh, it's much more like driving a Budweiser can with an engine. Ah, my, no, well. Yeah, you'll like it. That's that car right yes. there. <laughs> well, this is good, Zuckerman. We've had a nice chat. Um, you know, a few days ago, I spoke to Judd Apatow. Are you a Judd Apatow fan? I am, of course. Made some it's great brilliant. movies. Um, he's got a brand new movie out right now uh that's going to be released in two days that we're going to talk about with pete davidson you know pete davidson yeah. the comedian <clears throat> and uh is he a controversial figure pete we got in. we get into all of it in this interview we get into all of it we Does get he in, like pete of course yeah we get into his uh because that's i think where i began the interview i said i've been t- curious about two things and you opened up these two worlds one what the hell is Staten Island? I lived in New York for 10 years, but I never really got over there for a lot of different reasons, and I don't quite understand it. It's its own little ecosystem. But he opens up that world in this film, and this Pete Davidson character, who I see on television and who's hilarious, and then I see him in the in the tabloids, and I'm not sure what to make of it all. All of it is in this interview. I hope you guys enjoy it. <laughs> Well, thank you uh, so much for coming on. Um, I've been wanting to have you uh, on this podcast since I began podcasting. 
Um, you may not know this. I know we, we talk when we see each other, but I'm a, I'm a huge Judd Apatow fan. Thank um, you. I love your movies. They've resonated with me on, in amazing ways, um, in amazing moments, which I'll get into. I watched The King of Staten Island last night. Thank you for sending me that. Excellent. Um, you, you were one of the first. Um, I, I love seeing my name on the screen. <laughs> it says it's in place. It says Spike first, and I think that'll be the closest I ever get to being in one of your films. But boy, my wife and I were excited to see that. The movie is really wonderful, and um, you know I don't say that lightly. I I don't watch a lot of the movies uh, sent to me. Um, I, I made this. I I made a, Well, you know I jumped through them. Yes. But I made this a special night with Eric and I because we love watching your films together. And uh, it's really great. It really is great. And it, it answered two really important questions that I've been wondering uh, about. One, what's going on with Pete Davidson? You know, I see him on Saturday Night Live. He's wonderfully funny. He's such an interesting character. And then you read, him about, uh, read about him in the press. And two, what the hell goes on in Staten Island? <laughs> <laughs> and you, you brought us into both worlds. We had so much fun. We had so many laughs. And you explained so much of both Pete Davidson as a person, as a, as a comic, as an actor, and really these Staten Island characters. That are, that are done so well. I, I'm curious about process. Like when, after watching this and thinking about it for the last 24 hours, where, where does this start with you? Do you, are, are you watching Pete Davidson and you call him up and go, Hey, is there something you want to make? How did this movie begin? Well, he did a cameo in Trainwreck. Amy said, you know, this, this guy is so funny. He's only 20 years old. It makes no sense. <laughs> and we gave him a cameo and then afterwards bill just enjoyed him so much that he called lauren michaels and said you should put this guy on saturday night live and that's how he got cast on the show was from 40 minutes of improvising with bill and <laughs> and then we talked about making a movie and i gave him an idea for a, a, you know, like a goofy silly movie mm -hmm. and it, that didn't work out great but it was an opportunity for us to talk uh and figure out how we work together and for us to learn about each other. And then at some point I was like, well, maybe that's not the right idea. Maybe I gave you the wrong idea. And then he, he started talking about wanting to do something in the world of wanting his mom to be in a relationship, you, you know, wanting her to be happy. And I said, but if she was in a relationship, wouldn't that make you miserable? And wouldn't the worst person she could ever date be a firefighter? And that was the beginning of it. We, you know, what would bubble to the surface if his mom dated a firefighter? Now, in real life, he lost his father uh, on 9-11, correct? Right. Yes. So the, the movie kind of mirrors that. Um, his, his mom is played by Marissa Tomei, who's absolutely stunning, uh, beautiful. My wife was just like, what is she doing? How is she doing it? Look at her face. Look at those <laughs> eyes. She's so gorgeous. And she's, you know, we had her on Seinfeld. She's just such a wonderful actress. Bill Burr is amazing. Um, you, you say you bring this movie to him. And uh, God, I, I can only imagine. Judd Apatow brought me a movie, right? You would say yes right away. What is that? What is that like for you as a director and a producer? Do you get offended when someone doesn't like your idea or? 
are you just so into the creative process that you've seen this happen a dozen different ways? I think that it's not so much about the idea a lot of the time. It's about a commitment to try to figure something out. So you're saying to someone, let's try to work on something. And then you meet and see if you get along and then you start kicking around ideas. And then maybe you find one, maybe you never find it. I mean, I've had people that I love and we kick around ideas or we think we found the idea and then we start writing it and it's not good. And then maybe we never <laughs> come up with a second one. We just drift and that person gets a show and you don't see him again for five years. That happens all the time. But with certain people, they just stay in the pocket with you. And they, no matter what happens, they just keep the ball moving forward. That was the case with Kristen Wiig and Amy Schumer mm-hmm. and Kamal and Emily. They just kept pushing. Mm-hmm. And, and that's what it takes to actually you know, finish one and finish one in the way uh, where it's everything you hoped it would be. You know, you have such a funny little cluster of friends uh, that, that are Pete's friends in the movie. And, you know, of course, they're weed smokers. Are you a big weed smoker yourself? Or is... no, that, that's a funny thing is I'm so am not like <laughs> I've never enjoyed pot ever. I only have anxiety attacks or I just fall asleep. I'm just the worst pot person. And it doesn't even work for me if I take it to fall asleep because then I just have nightmares all night and I'm spacey the next day. Like pot just does not work for me. Every once in a while, a pot company will just send me pot and I'm like, I just would never use any of this. Uh, <laughs> but the conference they watch they do my favorite thing which is they're watching tv they're talking yes. about life they're talking about being high and smoking so much pot we don't get high anymore there's so many it's so dense with with uh reality real lines real real characters but then these really hard jokes that come at you out of nowhere uh like toward the end of the movie and i don't want to ruin it for anybody but the, one of the funniest thing ha- things happens towards the end of of the movie the the reveal of the tattoo which is all I'll say, yes, yes, yes. which we had to stop and go back and watch several <laughs> we were laughing so hard on a movie that we were emotionally engaged with where there weren't laughs right before that you know what i mean and yeah, i mean that's what i'm always trying to do like can i tell an emotional story <laughs> that's also really funny that's credible and you know, with this movie, there were, there were certain moments that I, I really love. One is the, the one you were mentioning where Pete says, I don't really get high anymore <laughs> while they're smoking. So there's like smoke coming out of their mouths as, as they say, I don't really get high anymore. It's you. And he's like, no, no. I just like the lifestyle. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> the lifestyle sitting in the basement watching The Purge. <laughs> and the faces are so wonderful and so Staten Islandy. I mean, I really adored it. I adored every minute of it. I adored the uh, Bill Burr's Red Sox references. I'm a Red Sox fan too. Bill Burr is just great in it and wonderful. And, and there's not a minute where you don't doubt that he's a fireman in New York City. Um, I, I noticed Maude Apatow was there. I'm guessing that's your daughter, Maude. Yes, that's Maude. And, she uh, does a wonderful job. Does she audition or does she just say, she hey, does. Dad? Oh, she no, does. I put her- I put her through the ringer also because I want to make sure she seems like Pete's sister. Right. Uh, and, and, you know, she actually carries a lot of emotional weight in the movie because she's the person that feels like he's taken all the air out of the room their whole life. And yeah. that he, he's required so much of their mom's attention that it was probably hard on her. So she's the straight A student who's looking to go to college and get the hell out of there. And they have this 
this tense, funny relationship where she calls him out on everything. So yeah, no, I definitely put her through the ringer and made her do a lot of rehearsals with Pete and, you know, wanted to make sure it felt exactly right. And she's, she's wonderful. And in a lot of ways, she was us on the couch watching Pete. <laughs> exactly. like she's saying what we're thinking. Yes. And uh, she really, it's really great to see her there. Does, does your wife then go, Hey, are, are you going to put me in Judd? What about, what about me? Leslie Mann? One of the funniest uh, actresses on the planet. Is there room well, for me here? Well, there's always other things that we're <laughs> thinking about or working on. You know, I think with, with this one, like, you know, we're not from Staten Island. <laughs> so it wasn't like this is 40 uh, for right. us. But right. with every, everything I do, I'm always looking to see, you know, who, who might be fun uh, to work with uh, from my family or from, from the group of people I like to work with. Mm -hmm. I worked with Iris for three years on Love. My other daughter, Iris, played Aria, the spoiled child star on Love. And she was so funny. So I'm always looking for opportunities because they're, they're so good. And, uh, and it, we've, we've enjoyed it. And now that I'm older uh, and we have this like canon of work we've done together, I'm really proud of, of, of it. When I look back at Knocked Up or This Is 40 or... Or, or funny people. I never watch it and think, I wish other people were in it. <laughs> <laughs> no, I know what you mean. It, it captures a time in your life and a time in your kids and your family's life. What I mean, amazing. Amazing that you're that type of dad and husband that puts this together. You're, you're the next big Hollywood dynasty. I'm, I'm, here. Like the, uh, I'm like Dan <laughs> Levy, you know, it's like... Uh, Dan's got to work with Eugene, you know, that's how it works. These days. I love it. Um, uh, as I was listening to the, re the fireman dialogue, is that something you kind of immersed yourself in the New York firefighter scene to get some of those conversations down? Or is that something you just uh, wrote down to the best of your ability? You know, we, we spent some time with firefighters in New York, but what we did was we hired a lot of firefighters who also act to play the firefighters. So about half of the firefighters in those scenes are current firefighters. And also not Steve Buscemi, I'm guessing. Steve not currently, but when he was a kid, not a kid, but when he was in his 20s, he was a firefighter for four years in Brooklyn and stayed very close to that community. Wow. And John Sorrentino, who plays one of the firefighters, was Pete Davidson's dad's best friend. And he was a, an advisor and a, a fireman in the movie. And I, this way I thought... Anytime I'm doing anything for the movie, I could just turn to any of them and go, is this bullshit? Am I doing this wrong? <laughs> like, all right, you guys are eating dinner. What are you talking about? And, you know, someone would say, we'd probably be like going over what happened at the last call, but also busting balls. Mm -hmm. and, mm -hmm. and that's how it would go. And would they really fire fire hoses inside the firehouse at each other? <laughs> the funny thing we learned is that firefighters think they're funny. And right. <laughs> they're not really that funny uh, uh, they have a very sweet gentle sense of humor where they'll talk about putting you know flour you know in a cabinet so when someone opened it it fell on their face and they talk about it like they just made the greatest comedy of all time <laughs> like, right right they do these very simple corny pranks and they love them so much <laughs> they're always dropping water on people's heads walking by and there's a lot of that kind of thing it's very sweet 
Uh, so we, we, we put that in the movie. It, it looked like you were leaving room for the actors to improvise a lot too, especially Bill Burr. Look, Bill Burr would look like he would score and everybody would laugh for real. Yes. Is oh, that absolutely. how you should? Yeah. It's how does that work? It's, it's very hard to show friendship in a movie. And one of the main ways you can show friendship is by uh, finding a way to have there be genuine laughter. So if I write a great Bill Burr joke and everyone's got to do their fake laugh, like <laughs> it's very different than if Bill Burr surprised you and actually busts you up. <laughs> so in most cases we have a script, but we have an awareness that they're going to drift. Mm -hmm. And in that drift, sometimes you get a great dramatic moment that's just more truthful. And other times, someone will just actually make somebody laugh. There's a funny run where they're all talking about cocaine. And uh, uh, Bill Burr says to Steve Buscemi, your face is on a nickel in Bolivia. Right, that's the moment. <laughs> and it just <laughs> surprises Steve. <laughs> and he really cracks up, and so it doesn't feel like... Uh, a soap opera or something. Yeah, no, I, I, I saw that for sure. Now, is let's go back to quarantine here. Was this movie destined to be released in theaters? Uh, as I recall, I thought I saw your Twitter feed where you said it was going to be uh, at South by Southwest. Yes, that... we also had to go to South by Southwest and open the festival, and then we were going to do a big benefit at Tribeca in New York. But uh, the pandemic hit that week, and then we didn't even talk about the release for months we just thought well it'll it'll see the light of day at some point and no one really knew how anything would work mm -hmm. and we finally started having some conversations with universal about the option of video on demand and i have put movies and television out on streaming services before i produced a, a movie called peewee's big holiday mm -hmm. uh, which is on netflix and we had a great time making that movie and it went straight to netflix and you know we've done love for netflix and crashing for HBO. So for me, I, I thought it would be weird to make a movie about grief and trauma and heroes and firemen and EMT workers and nurses in this moment and go, I don't want to put it out for a year. I want to wait till it's in a theater when it can bring people so much joy right now and maybe help them process what they're going through. It, it seemed very clear. Oh, this, this is supposed to come out right now. So I, I'm actually very excited to get it out there. I couldn't agree more. Um, it's on demand everywhere. June 12th, The King of Staten Island. Um, you're going to be able to rent it on Prime Video, Apple TV, Xfinity, Voodoo, Google Play, Fandango Now. Didn't even know that existed. YouTube, Verizon, Microsoft, DirecTV, Cox. It's everywhere. PlayStation. It's on Look at BBC you. America, Shudder, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, Wherever Hallmark, you... the Hallmark Channel is going to have it. It's on the Cooking Channel, Weather Channel. You can't avoid it. Will it be on my Wi-Fi toaster? You're going to turn on your Apple Watch and it will already be playing. <laughs> and last night, you know, uh, this show is now uh, going to be posted two days before your premiere, but I uh, watched this in the middle of what's going on in the United States and and the protesters and the looters and the white supremacists and that mess. And I can't tell you how grateful I was for two hours of entertainment, two hours of, of immersing myself in someone else's life. And, you know, your wonderful script, your directing it has a real purity and a, and a clear organic look. I mean, it looks almost like real life at times. 
Um, and again, I felt immersed in the same way, this will be odd, but in the same way I was taken away in Game of Thrones to a different world of characters in a different place, <laughs> I was in this new place, Staten Island. And I, and I you know, with, the, with their own Yankee team that I didn't know. I lived in New York for 10 years. I didn't know there was a Staten Island Yankee team. That's the, um, uh, the uh, AAA ball. And I loved it. I really, really loved it. Let me, let me talk to you about a couple other things. I've been watching kind of from afar, and I brought it up a couple times on the podcast, how much I admire your uh, getting into stand-up late in life. I know you started off as a stand-up, but there, there came to be a time and period, unless I'm wrong, where you stopped doing that and you were making movies and then came back to it. What was that maybe? Four years ago? Five years ago? I, I started again when I was working on Trainwreck with Amy because Amy would leave to go do these concerts and she was always performing at the Comedy Cellar and she would tell me about it. And that part of me that loved it so much when I was a kid just started bubbling up. Mm -hmm. and so we were in New York working and I said, Amy, I'm going to go on at the Comedy Cellar just so you could see what it was like when I did it. Just to make you laugh. <laughs> and she was like really amused because she thought I would just <laughs> bomb, right? She was sure it would be a nightmare for me, which is what she had hoped for. But I just wound up going on stage and telling a couple of stories that I had told on talk shows, things that seemed to be mm -hmm. no-brainers. Uh, and for some reason, I wasn't nervous. I'm not sure why, mainly because I just thought it would be funny if I did bomb. So I, I, I wasn't like in a mode of, I need to do well. Well, I just happened to do well randomly and then the owners uh and sd the booker said hey you come into whatever you want now no comedy club was ever that nice to me when i did stand up so i decided to take them up on it so every night of the entire train wreck shoot i went to the comedy cellar at night after we wrapped wow and i would do a set and uh and then we started working on the pete home show crashing for hbo which took place at the comedy cellar and i got really into it till i did a, a netflix stand-up special that's up there called The Return. If you seek more content for your queue. And I've had the best time. But mainly, I, I felt for a long time that I was spending too much time just alone in a room writing or hanging out with my editor. And I felt very distant from comedy. I knew there were clubs and comedians, but I wouldn't really go to the clubs. I didn't know who anyone was. And I felt pretty out of it. Mm -hmm. And just by doing stand-up and re-immersing i feel like it's helped everything that i do and i i've met so many great friends and it's all been great wow it takes a lot of courage because you know you're judd apatow that that means something to the comedy world yeah some and... people are like don't do it like why do you, <laughs> yeah why do you, why do you want to be see, seen as a comedian you're a director don't you want to like seen as a director and i'm like right no i actually would rather be seen as a comedian yeah. Like, I never wanted to be seen as a director. Who dreams of that? I wanted to be <laughs> I wanted people to think I was like Jeff Altman or Harry Muldeer. That was my Right. Dream. Right. And it, yet it takes courage. I mean, I think back to when I'm hosting a late night show on um, Fox and wanted to add a stand-up component and I couldn't get past the fear of you know, I'm out there with a prompter and one of the funniest writing staffs in late night and I've got things to say. And now I'm on stage and I've really got nothing and it doesn't 
I don't have that security blanket with me. And I realized I'm starting from zero and I'm starting late at night with Barry Sobel. He and I are, (laughs) (laughs) our old friend Barry, we're just hitting clubs at midnight and I've got two, I've got a baby and a two-year-old and I was like, I I don't think I can do this right now. And I watched you do it and I had nothing but, you know, admiration for you just facing that fear and saying, fuck it and going out there because you're right. This is, there's that immediacy. It's you and a microphone. You can say whatever you want to the audience and no one's going to mess with it. You're not going to get any notes. Do you even get notes at this point, Judd? Uh, I get canceled. <laughs> <laughs> I get less notes, but canceled just as often. <laughs> Do you ever go in and pitch an idea and have, have them say, forget it? No. Oh, yeah, absolutely. That. I mean, I, I pitched crashing to Netflix and Netflix said no and it went to HBO and I pitched love to HBO and they said no and I did it at Netflix. So it isn't like everyone opens the door wide. I think they they do have a general sense like you made a bunch of stuff that all seems kind of solid. <laughs> I don't think you're going to make anything that's going to ruin us. Uh, you know, your worst things will be noble failures. So uh, that is helpful that people just go, oh, he, he knows how to make things. And then every once in a while, something captures people's imaginations. I, I can't even comprehend them saying no to you in a room. I mean, the marketing I'll send you alone. a video next time it happens. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I have my own videos. <laughs> I have a couple from last week. Yes. Um, you know, uh, one of the movies you made, Knocked Up, uh, that I spoke about earlier, it was such a special night because I was with my neighbor. We both had our wives who were pregnant. It was my first child. And boy, you know, it was one of those memorable nights in my life. When I think back to Hollywood and the fun, I think, I think about that night often because the, the movie is made for me, it feels like. And my wife and my friends, we're in this now. We have, we're, they're pregnant. And what a bullseye, you know. It really, it's, it's one of, I, I would say, the top five film experiences I've ever had. Wow. Well, Just I, because I it resonates with a moment of my life so directly and it's so honest and there's so so many of the books and the concern of the wife all these things you just nail those details you know those when all that's going down you don't know what to do except take notes right right so stressful and there's it's it's such a change of life and especially for me i was so in over my head Mm -hmm. and I just thought this is all so hard and weird and funny and delightful and crazy that I remember making notes that, you know, there's a sequence in the movie where the doctor doesn't show up. He leaves town when it's time to deliver the baby, which is what happened to us. And mm-hmm. while it was happening, I just took out a notebook and I started making notes because everything that happened that night was so crazy. <laughs> I couldn't even believe it. Wait a second. So you're not in town? Like we're having a baby? And you've, you've gone to San Francisco to a bar mitzvah? You didn't tell me? That's so and, good. Uh, and there's nothing you can do but say, I guess it's fine. You know, the, what you're saying right now is what we did on Seinfeld. Did you ever want to write on a show like that or any of the big sitcoms? Were you ever trying to like break into one of those shows? Because what you just said is how Larry David taught us to write. That's how they, he taught us to write from. He goes, don't come in and, 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 and tell me some idea you wrote last night. I want to know the, the strange things that have happened to you and what you wanted to do. Maybe you didn't do it, but what you wanted to do or that yeah, yeah. <laughs> strange thing someone says at a cocktail party to you or that. And, and it was such a relief to me because 
it really is, I believe, the only talent I have is uh, strange things happen to me. Yeah, <laughs> I don't know true. that I am necessarily a writer per se, as I am someone who just notices this, the, the things in life that don't make sense, and I take notes. You know, it's interesting. I've never heard anyone before talk about how Larry David runs a writer's room. Yeah. And how he instructs the writers and how he generates their ideas to throw in the pot. Yeah. What was that like? Uh, it's, it's, it's liberating. I, I came off Letterman really not knowing how to write a half hour or even how they worked. I had no, no clue. And I went in the first time to pitch Larry and Jerry and, you know, they, they here's what they told me, uh, Gamble and Pross. They said, if, if, if you hear them laughing, you've sold a story. And sold, I was already on staff, but the idea that, that that's going to be an episode. I pitched 10 ideas, I got nothing. And then Larry said, so what's, uh, you just came from New York? And I'm like, yeah. And he goes, well, what's going on in New York? And I started telling them the story of the soup Nazi. This, this, yes. And, and yes. now Larry's laughing. And I, and what are you, the soup Nazi? Now Jerry's laughing. He goes, what is that? Because you got to order the soup, right, whatever. They go, that's your first episode. And then they kick me out. Now I'm sweating <laughs> and red and just like, what just fucking happened? You know, and, and hadn't really wrapped my head around, that's what these guys are looking for. You're going to come in with your experience and you're going to shape an outline and maybe you'll get a few of the scenes right. And then Jerry and Larry are going to turn it into an episode. We'll yeah. take it. In other words, we'll take it from here. <laughs> you know, and that's the way it works. So with that story or any story, I, I retreated. I went to the writers and said, what, what just happened? They said, start outlining act one. Just see if you can get that story to act one. And I, you know, then bring Larry and Jerry in. And they would come in two or three weeks later. I talk them through it. They'd go, yes, no. I think this will start to happen in act two and that. Why don't you put that up? Oh, we love that. And outline some more. Then maybe three or four weeks later, you just, they come in, they're working on other episodes. They just go, all right, you're up. <laughs> get, get a draft, get a draft together and get it to us uh, in the next couple of days, you know, and uh, boy, talk about uh, 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 scary. And they would do the, the punch up of it in the room or they would take it themselves. I would do a draft. I think I would get a set of notes. It probably wasn't that quick before we shot, but, um, eventually, it w there was never any punch up with any of the writers at that point. It was just Larry and Jerry. You'd get some notes on the script, you'd execute the notes, and then it would be time to shoot your episode. And you would just hand it off to them, and they would read it, rewrite it over the weekend. Uh, the writers would sit outside their office, almost <laughs> like a secretary. If there were any questions, yeah. they'd open the door. And they'd go, oh, well, what's with the armoire again? Why can't you just, oh, you can't take it in because it's a rule. You can't take uh, furniture in over the weekend. Okay, good. Door would slam. Five hours later, they'd come out, something else. But you knew that you were turning it over to the best, that what you had given them, this kind of uh, diamond in the rough, was going to turn out to be one of the best diamonds there was. I mean, it was really an amazing process to watch. And occasionally, the door would be open, and you would see Jerry and George, the characters, having it out, <laughs> discussing, and let's put that in. Oh, that's funny. Well, I wouldn't do that. No, no, ask that question right now. I wouldn't do that. And it was <clears throat> very reassuring for me. I have not been in a situation like that since then. I've been trying to get a show like that on the air, but there's something really liberating about that process and about talking about just what is going on in your life, knowing that 
the difference between the stuff everybody else is experiencing and the stuff that will actually be entertaining and the stuff that you do, which is those small detail things. Well, it also helps in the, those two people are geniuses. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, I, I, what it reminds me of is, you know, people don't realize what you're talking about is them working seven days a week. Right. Right. So they're, they're completely obsessed. And it's not like now where people do eight episodes, they're doing 22 of these. Yeah. It's a long year. And that's how it worked uh, in some respects at the Larry Sanders show, which we were shooting at the same time on the same lot. You know, we would work on the scripts and Gary would give notes. And then at some point Gary would say, come to my house on Sunday. So he wouldn't even do it on Saturday. And then he would want to sit down and sometimes the writers would come at two o'clock or three o'clock or Gary would push what time it would start later and later. Now he's saying, come by at five or six. And the writers knew that meant they would get two or three hours of notes from Gary. And then he would say, execute the notes. Right. You know, he wouldn't do the notes. He would just, he'd write a lot of notes and give you a lot of jokes and tell you what was wrong. And then you'd have to stay up till four in the morning doing it for the table read on Monday. And then you inevitably wouldn't get it all right. Then Gary would be annoyed at the table read. And it wasn't exactly what he was trying to explain to you. So there was a little more of that frustration. Yeah. How come you, you didn't make it perfect. Right. And when I finally was co-running the show with Adam Resnick, the last season, I just said to Gary, can we do it more like you're describing? Like, can I just pull you into a room and get you to do this rewrite with me? Yeah. And, and that didn't happen all the time, but it was always easier. And I said, Gary, isn't it fun just me and you doing it as opposed to us working hard and then you being irritated that we didn't do it right? Like, it's faster to just sit with me and you're funnier yeah. than us. So let's just jump to the, the chase here. And it's... You know, when you're disappointing someone like Gary Shandling or you're disappointing someone like Jerry Seinfeld it, and you're just starting out as a writer, I mean, you, I mean, you sweat it out. You feel that. I remember Gary in our last season came into our writer's room. Yeah. He goes, I want to write a scene with you guys. And it was the episode <laughs> where George brings the book into the bathroom. And uh, he and uh, Jerry are arguing and we didn't have a blow and out to the scene. And, Gary, and we've been thinking about it. Gary walks in. He goes, what are you doing? He goes, we, we need an ending to the scene. And he goes, uh, he goes, all right. He just goes like this for a second. He goes, okay, read me the scene. And he goes, okay, here it is. <laughs> just like this. He goes, uh, and may I ask what you bring into the bathroom? He goes, I don't bring anything into the bathroom. Well, aren't you something? <laughs> those three lines came out and they were perfection and then he goes bye now here we've been slaving over this end for an hour um but that's the genius of these guys uh, you know another moment i remember on that lot on cbs radford and i don't know if you were standing there for this but letterman came to visit or shoot something there in la and letterman seinfeld and shandling all met in the front parking lot area there stood wow. arms folded in this weird you know, comedy titan triangle of power and had a chat while their kind of number twos and threes were behind them. <laughs> and it was this meeting of the three biggest comics in the world at that time in the late 90s. And well, boy, we're like uh, in Hollywood in the yeah very late 70s or 80, 81. And 
and and there's all sorts of a hierarchy there and tensions and mm-hmm. things we don't quite know about. Yeah, I mean Gary and Letterman definitely had you know a, a funky kind of relationship that was hard to understand. You could maybe look at it just like it's just like alpha alpha guys. Too many alpha guys in the yeah. same space. Yeah, uh, that's exactly what it was. You're exactly right. <laughs> I have uh, I have this picture I keep on my desk here of Gary. The last time I saw him out in Malibu. Oh wow, that's we fantastic were at that, at that uh, Malibu's uh, country store. Yeah, just having a cup of coffee on a Tuesday or something, and he walked up, and he couldn't have been sweeter. I, I didn't really know him that well. Um, Though he said we did know each other very well. <laughs> and he was, he was very anxious to hear how he did. Did he score on comedians in cars getting uh, coffee? <laughs> well, that's a remarkable appearance. I mean, the, the, yeah. Jerry and him just went to such a deep personal place. And when I was working on the documentary, I was lucky enough to, to get Jerry to give me all of the dailies oh, wow. of that appearance. And I went through all the dailies. And in the documentary, I recut a lot of it just to let it breathe more and to just show how Gary and Jerry behave in real time. And there was even more beautiful moments in there, especially now looking back, now that we've lost Gary. And they they loved each other so much. They had such a deep connection because their journey was similar. They, They were on a similar arc and to the Tonight Show and then, uh, and then had these series. And, uh, and the other thing I found was they made this movie called Comedian about Jerry focusing on his stand-up again after Seinfeld ended. And in the movie, there's about, you know, whatever, 20 seconds of him hanging out with Gary at the Comedy Magic Club at Nermosa Beach. But I got two hours of footage from the documentarians who made it. And it's just them talking in a green room before a show starts. And I put a few minutes of it in the documentary and it's, it's really incredible. But online, if you go on YouTube, I put 10 minutes of it. Wow. And it's like getting a chance to be in a green room when these you know, legends talk about how they do it. Right, right. Uh, and I, I found that to be really the soul of that movie, you know, their talks. Because I think what Jerry said uh, you know, with Gary on Comedians in Cars about their friendship was so powerful. And I think it's the only place where Gary got to talk about his spirituality and who he really was uh, in the way that he was trying to figure out how to do maybe on stage. I think he, he did it with Jerry on that show. Uh, and that was the direction he was trying to move in. He had that amazing joke where he talked about this guy walking up to him and, and uh, saying, you know, I... I I think the story was like, I did your MRI a few years ago and uh, uh, I heard that, uh, I heard you died. Uh, and heard, something like that. And he's like, nope, I didn't die. He's like, oh yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah I thought you probably didn't because uh, I figured on TV they would have you know, broken in. And, and, and Gary's like, yeah, I don't know if it would have been worth breaking in, but no, I'm the, I, I didn't die. And the guy goes, oh man, I'm so glad, I'm so glad you're not dead. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Are you? Have you taken over his Twitter feed, or did I just hear that wrong? I, I didn't. I, I believe his uh, best friend Bruce Grayson runs his Twitter. Mm-hmm. And you know, we found thirty years of diaries and all these books of jokes. Oh, wow. So, so he occasionally puts things up for people yeah. to see. All right. Before I let you go, 
I know, uh, like uh, me, you are a late night eater. You uh, oh, you yeah. watch a lot of news. You get insane. Maybe you tweet some things. I'm a, I'm a I'm a dragon on next door. People hate me. On the next door <laughs> app, and then then I eat. What what do you eat when you're struggling? When you're stressed, what is your thing? Last night, I I I said, you know what? I can't do it tonight. I'm not going to pretend I can be good. So. <laughs> I ordered pad thai like early in the day. I'm like, mm. I bet you I'm not gonna be able to get food later. So I ordered dinner at like two o'clock. And then I ate a lot of it, a lot of that pad thai. And then <laughs> my wife fell asleep. I went downstairs. I had a pint of vanilla uh, salt and straw ice cream. Mm. And then I had a, a whole thing of Fox's You Bet chocolate <laughs> syrup. And I would eat a bite of ice cream, pour a ton of syrup, have another bite of ice cream until I ate the entire pint, and then I took a sedative and went to bed. <laughs> <laughs> there you have it, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, do you watch TV while you do that, or do you just it's like I, a solitary in a closet type of thing? Uh, I have done both. Sometimes I'll just take the phone and look at clips of right on CNN. Last night, <laughs> I'm trying to think how I did it. What was the like sad, sad way I did it? I do, I do think I. I turned on the TV, but I don't remember what I, what I watched. <laughs> I know I spent a lot of yesterday watching Seinfeld on Howard Stern. Oh, yeah. They did, he, they did a new great interview about his new special. Right. Which uh, I'm really excited to watch. It's uh, good. It's, it's very, very good. I have one small line in it that I don't even think Jerry remembers me giving him, but um, it's, I've been watching that act for years and watching it get from small into big and beautiful. And when I watched it, even though I'd seen that act 10 times, there was still 25, 30% more stuff that was added since the last time I saw him, which was like eight months ago. You know, he's really a genius at putting that stuff together, but so are you Judd Apatow. You like that? That's one of the great segue. pleasures I had was I was one, uh, one of the producers of his previous special mm -hmm. uh, where he you know, punched up his act from the late 80s and performed it at the comic strip where he started. Right. And I watched all the, the shows and he was masterful. It was so fun and he had the best time. He killed so hard but what was meaningful for me was i went to caroline's in new york in 1984 when i was 16 or 17 to watch him do that set wow and that's one of the reasons why i got into stand-up was because of that yeah set. yeah no he he works hard um the king of staten island is on demand everywhere in a couple of days june 12th judd apatow thank you Thank you for coming on. This has uh, been a lifelong dream of mine, kind of like you chasing those comedians when you were a kid. I really am a huge fan of your work and your movies and your writing. Uh, as, a, as a comedy writer myself, we all want to be Judd Apatow. We all want to be you. The only we person who doesn't want to <laughs> is me. <laughs> Except during the ice cream <laughs> No, even during that. Um, congratulations on the movie. Yes, thank you, neighbor. We didn't even talk about our neighboring. We'll talk yeah, about we will. Next time. Thank next you. time, my friend. All right, so long. All right, see you, Spike. <laughs> well, there it is, Zuckerman. 
That was Judd Apatow. Interesting guy, right? Wow. Yeah, amazing. That the, he's at the top of the pyramid for the comedy writers and directors. We all really do want to be him and have his money. Hey, Judd, give me your money. You don't <laughs> give me your it. money. You don't use right it now. right. I need to use it better. Yeah, no, it would be great. Um, in any case, that's all we have for Spike's Car Radio. Next week, uh, we've got an amazing show for you guys. Zuckerman booked it. I'm excited to be a part of it. Zuckerman, go ahead, promo it. Okay, I work with some fellows, ex-gang members in L.A., ex-Crips and Bloods from the 70s, 80s, uh, that era, the really bad era. And we're going to have a special guy. His name is Charles Spratley, otherwise known as Bear, out on the street. And Bear uh, is now in gang prevention and in reentry, uh, long-time convicts coming in back into society he helps with re-entry and he's going to bring us his point of view about what's been going on during his lifetime and culminating in the past uh in the past couple of weeks and i think he wow. brings a very very interesting perspective and I, I he's such a great guy i really adore him yeah i can't wait this is going to be fun we'll record it uh Monday. That way we can talk about anything that's happened up until that moment. Well, that's it, my friends. Enjoy your uh, week. Enjoy your weekend. Uh, we need a catchphrase. We could say it right here at this point. What, what should we? What, what should we say? Well, okay. I, I want to say it's all. That's all, folks. But that's stupid. <laughs> <laughs> Let's try can, it. Can you do that? Can you do the sound? That's all, folks. That's no, no, stupid. It was like, that's all, folks. That's stupid. <laughs> right, goodbye. Thanks for listening to Spike's Car Radio, brought to you by Hangar Fifty Six. Listen to new episodes every Wednesday. And be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Has the winter season taken a toll on your tile, upholstery, carpet? Call Cyclone Cleaners, 570-726-6200. For all your carpet, upholstery, and ceramic tile cleaning needs, it's Cyclone Cleaners. Also offering odor treatment and soil and stain guard. Choose the only cleaning company that supplies the water to clean your home and disposes of it when they are finished. Call Cyclone Cleaners to schedule your cleaning today. 570-726-6200.